This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Four years. This episode spans four years, but I really do think it works. I don't want to give too much away, but a lot happens here, including a little nod towards some soccer tactics, at least in my estimation, which also, in my opinion, is something the world needs a little bit more of. So let's just jump in, shall we? This is episode 117, and it's entitled, A Ship Be Calmed. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Upon Duke Roberts' return to Apulia, as I alluded to on the last episode, the new national pastime of Southern Italians rebelling against Roberts' rule kicked off. But this time it was different. This wasn't just a revolt of some peasants. It wasn't even an uprising of the peasantry, stoked on by Byzantine words and coin. Not necessarily. This rebellion was actually led by some of Roberts' own barons. To add insult to injury, this one cut a little deeper to the Hopeville monopoly on power. Full transparency, Byzantine money did, in fact, fund this one, but it was money spent stoking the flames of already smoldering tensions among the Lombards, Greeks, Normans, and Italians in the region. Yes, I said Normans in there. See, the rebellion was led, essentially, by Lord Jocelyn of Molfetta, Molfetta being located just 17 miles straight up the coast from Bari. Jocelyn of Molfetta was close with three other men, three other Hauteville men, I should add. Being such close proximity to Bari, Jocelyn no doubt had easy access to Byzantine influence and coin, so all he needed was a pretense for rebellion in order to gain access to that good old-fashioned Byzantine influence and coin. The pretense had been put into place roughly a decade earlier, when Robert Guiscard first took the reins in southern Italy after the death of his older brother, Humphrey de Hopewell. See, if you remember, when Count Humphrey died, he had already put, albeit reluctantly, as he didn't exactly jive with his younger brother Robert, well, he put Robert in charge of his entire estate, his wealth his title, everything, just until Humphrey's young son, Abelard, was old enough. Before Humphrey's body was cold, it seems, Robert Guiscard lived up to his deceitful nickname and outright stole all Humphrey had had him promised to keep safe for Abelard until Abelard hit majority. And Robert never looked back. Well, that was the pretense. Now, it was 1064, and Abelard had in fact hit his majority, and then some. Young Abelard had come collecting, and with him was Lord Jocelyn of Mofetta. Wrangling two of his cousins, Abelard had a team of four rather dangerous Apulian barons. Back this up with Byzantine money and guidance, and Duke Robert returned to a rather dangerous affront to his power. Again, this whole thing stemmed from Robert's devious past deeds toward his own blood. It's worth mentioning here that this money didn't necessarily come directly from Bari, 
though Lord Jocelyn, I'm assuming, used his access to Byzantine influence to gain such a connection to other Byzantine powers across the Adriatic. We will see that play out on this little, this little narrative here. Across the Adriatic Sea in the city of Durazzo was a man who was a loyalist of the emperor in Constantinople. His name was Perenos, and he was the appointed Duke of Durazzo. Durazzo was fast becoming the new Bari insofar as it was the Eastern Roman Empire's furthest Western stronghold now that Bari had been under increasingly suffocating pressure for the better part of a decade, if not, if not longer than that. This means that Duke Perenos of Durazzo had a vested interest in keeping the Normans at bay way over there across the Adriatic Sea. What better way to do this than to keep the powerful Norman duke from taking full control of his duchy? With a nearly endless supply of money and supplies and support coming from Constantinople by way of Durazzo, along with an already hostile peasantry toward Robert Giscard, well, it seemed as if Jocelyn, Geoffrey, Robert of Montescaglioso, and of course Abelard, might be able to do what not even the Pope had been able to do. They might actually topple the mighty Norman power structure once and for all, namely Robert Giscard himself. Robert's attention was solely on Apulia for the time being. These rebels weren't just his primary focus, they were, in fact, his only focus. He had absolutely no time, no patience, and no money to consider anything else, least of all expanding his control over an obstinate Sicily. And speaking of Sicily, despite the lack of support from his brother, Roger never lost sight of his own goals. Malatera uses the word determined here and adds that Roger was, quote-unquote, anxious not to remain inactive, which reminds me of what I mentioned a couple episodes back. Invading armies must keep moving, otherwise they will surely fail. Though history tells us that the Normans controlled places like Messina and Traina, we can't lose sight of the fact that this is still largely hostile territory. They may have it subdued, but unless they can begin to sway hearts and minds, well, subduing was all they could hope for. Malaterra continues, quote, As was his custom, he was always busy, so much so that neither strong winds nor the darkness of night could discourage him, for he moved from one place to another, taking charge of everything himself. His mere presence, more than anything else, terrified the enemy. They were so scared by his frequent and rapid movements that they thought him always to be there. End quote. But the chronicler continues to say that even eventually Sicilian networking started picking up traffic, and Roger's whereabouts were no longer as secret as they had been. Because of this, Roger, intent on continuing his raiding and terrorizing, decided to garrison fewer men in Messina and pull others toward Troina. Essentially, toward Troina, not only as a forward position, but also Troina was the place where dear Judith, Roger's new wife, uh, was what typically spent her time. Once this small movement occurred, he surprised everyone and established a new temporary capital at a walled town he'd already attacked and taken earlier, the town of Petralia. Now, Petralia was a really interesting choice to set up a new capital city. Being an audio podcast, 
My hands are a little tied when it comes to giving you descriptions of places and their relation to one another, essentially maps, right? I'll do my best with your patience here. I'm sorry if this falls flat. Makes sense in my head, though. In the upper right hand of the rounded-off triangle that Sicily can be seen as, in the upper right hand, we have, of course, the Norman-held city of Messina. I mean, it's way up there, directly across from the toe of Italy. Now, from Messina, head straight west across the north coast of the island, probably, I'd say about two-thirds of the way to the western edge, and you'll see the grand city of Palermo. Headed slightly back east and south, right smack in the center of the island, and you'll find, of course, Anna, high atop a central peak. Formidable fortress. From Enna, move back northeast in the direction of Messina. And about halfway there, you'll run into another mountain fortress. That's Troina. We've essentially just established a triangle between the three points of Messina in the upper right, Palermo toward the upper left, but not quite all the way over. And the bottom point of the triangle is Enna. Now, at this point, I'm going to point out something from my playing and coaching days that this makes me think of. In soccer, successful teams have mastered the use of triangles between players. I know a lot of you are following along with me here. For our non-footballers in the audience, let me explain it. In groups of three players, triangles are created and abandoned and recreated up and down the field for the entirety of your team's possession of the ball. Now, I feel like a good 900 years before soccer was officially developed, Roger de Hauteville was utilizing his idea, this idea of triangles in his approach to his next moves in Sicily. In soccer, triangles are essentially player relationships that maximize the fewer resources available and dominate small spaces. In Sicily, when Roger moved his capital to Petralia, he created another triangle to maximize the small area in the north and the northeast of Sicily that were more or less under his domain. Now, just like soccer, you create triangles and you abandon them almost as quickly if you find the defenses onto your plan. That's the ebb and flow nature of the game, the beautiful game. And whether we've connected it or not, it's also the ebb and flow nature of warfare and conquest as well. See, we've seen Roger on a few occasions push through toward Enna, only to come up empty. Cutting Sicily in half and controlling its mighty central fortress is a great game plan. But like untold plays in soccer, it, it just didn't work out. I mean, that's the way it is. Some plans don't w- uh, work out. A new plan had to be devised during the game, during the conquest. Now, in a soccer game, this is a momentary push the ball back to your defense again, reevaluate, pass around, form new triangles moving forward. Obviously, in warfare and conquest, it's more than just momentary like that. But I think the metaphor still holds. Roger's new plan consisted of utilizing as few men and resources after the Battle of Chirami in 1063 to, you know, take the countryside piecemeal. However, his older brother wanted to go for, go for the jugular all of a sudden and subsequently botched his Hail Mary against Palermo 
earlier that year, 1064. Now, with Robert back in Apulia as of fall of 1064, Roger was now able to resume his original plan of taking the land piece by piece. And Roger's first couple triangles, as I've already laid out, were actually already set. His first one occurred a few years earlier, between the cities of Reggio on the mainland, Messina, and Troina, he'd established the far northeast of Sicily as Norman. His second triangle, in my estimation, occurred when he conquered, more or less, the Val de Mon. See, in this triangle, we see Roger utilizing Messina and Troina again, but now he garrisoned men at the new Norman castle on the north coast called San Marco di Aluncio, which we've mentioned before. So that's another triangle. Now, these two triangles still only hold a very small portion of the island, but Roger realized pretty quickly, after attacking Enna and failing and attacking Enna and failing and trying to die, you know, drive further in inland all, of a, all at once and you know, failing, Roger realized pretty quickly that Sicily would be a pretty formidable task. Piecemeal had to be the name of the game despite all the amazing battlefield victories he was piling up recently. His next triangle would stay north of Mount Etna and north of Enna. He would continue his harassment of the island, cutting deep gouges through through to its western coastlines, but conquering would be a much, much slower affair. This next triangle is the one that incorporates the city of Petralia. So where's Petralia? Okay, go with me again. (laughs) Picture the bigger triangle between Messina, Palermo, and Enna. Troina is halfway between Enna and Messina. So that pushes the triangle inland. So now the triangle has become uh, Troina, Enna, and Palermo. Right. But again, as far as Palermo and as far as Enna, they still weren't really Roger's territory. They were still largely Muslim, Sicilian, right? But that's what we're working with inside that larger, that larger triangle. So halfway between Palermo and Troina is the city of Petralia. The new triangle Roger seeks to control consists of, it's inside more, Troina, Petralia, and San Marco de Luncio. Petralia wasn't just helping to maintain a point further west than Roger had controlled so far. It was also a forward outpost with which to terrorize and unsettle the lands around Palermo. By moving to Petralia, he showed his hand to the enemy. The problem was, no one really knew if it was Palermo he was after, or if it was still Enna. He could be slowly pushing toward Palermo, or he could be trying to surround Enna, in, an, in order to weaken its supply chains and hopefully collapse it at some point. At the end of the day, Roger was making it clear that he was a patient conqueror and that he was beginning with the northern coast of Sicily. But with Robert Giscard struggling back in Apulia, like legit struggling with this particular rebellion, Roger was pretty much on his own. Petralia certainly gave the appearance that Roger was leaning on his front foot, But in reality, Roger was flat broke. I mean, like when the Duke needed money, you gave your Duke money. 
and when the duke needed soldiers, you gave him soldiers. Supplies, horses, it was all the same story. When your duke needed something, that's the agreement. You give it to him. Roger's lines quickly thinned because his duke needed all of it. And this put his recent advancements into Sicily in serious jeopardy. And if he were to backtrack, then the Saracens would catch wind of something being amiss. And this would be Roger's story for the next few years, unfortunately for him. And to top it all off, the steady stream of Normans and Franks heading south to southern Italy to join the thousands of others to have trekked there in the previous decades seeking wealth and glory and land, well, this stream dried up almost instantly in 1066. Sound familiar? As the Duke of Normandy himself called any and all mercenaries to join him as he sailed for England. The impact on southern Italy and Sicily was glaringly obvious during this time. The Norman conquest of England effectively pressed pause on any further movements into Sicily. It's just as, it's, it's as simple as that. Roger was in a tremendously dangerous holding pattern, one that he had to keep secret, otherwise his enemies may pounce. Norwich writes, referring to the span of years uh, of 1064 to 1068, quote, For four years, like a ship becalmed, the Norman army in Sicily lay isolated and powerless, all its momentum gone. No pitched battles are recorded, no new conquests, no significant advances. For tales of Norman achievement over this period, we must look to Northern Europe, to the beaches of Kent and the field of Hastings, where the Normans in Sicily were concerned, the years around 1066 were among the dullest in their history. End quote. Yeah, that's pretty much that. That was Roger's situation between the end of 1064 and early 1068. His hands were absolutely tied. He remained in Sicily for just about all of those four years, and he no doubt enjoyed the stories of daring and victory from up north. But he wanted to end his own drought. He wanted to get back to work. Given his meager numbers, he still put pressure on his Saracen enemies. But they were really just harassing raids on the countryside. Again, if he failed to give the appearance of strength and confidence then the Saracens would surely, surely sniff out Roger's problems. He needed to keep the locals on their back feet. He nickel and dimed his enemies, stealing here, pillaging this village, burning those fields, capturing these unfortunate merchants on the road and selling them for profit. But come on, these were amateur tactics, and Roger was not an amateur. He, as Norwich says, must have been maddeningly frustrated. However, something was happening within the Saracen camp in Sicily that Roger couldn't help but look on with great interest. Do you remember all of those North African mercenaries that flooded into Sicily after Ibn al-Hawas and other Sicilian leaders had asked for Zirid help, Zirid help from the mainland, way back in about 1053? Well, they kept flooding in, like all these years. It's a decade now. Like the flood never really stopped as of 1065. And now, Zirid leadership back in North Africa 
Well, it was causing some structural upheavals among Saracen elite. I mentioned this on the last episode. So here's a question to consider. If Roger was stretched to the breaking point with a severe lack of manpower, horses, supplies, and money, how in the world did he ever hang on long enough to see that 1064 to 1068 period through? Your answer lies in what was happening with this flood of Zerids and Berber mercenaries. For these four years or so, Roger and his Normans were merely afterthoughts, if you can believe it. Norwich calls the Saracens during this time now, quote-unquote, hopelessly divided. If Roger could rest on anything, it was this. So the principal Muslim leaders back in 1063 at Cherami began with Emir Ibn al-Hawas of Enna as the architect of the Cherami disaster. Under him were two prominent and battle-tested Zirid princes. The eldest was named Ayub and the other Ali. I also mentioned this on the last episode. After Chirami, these two brothers, absolutely humiliated, rose up against Al-Hawas after Al-Hawas pointed out the, the growing Berber and Zirid presence on the island and how that wasn't exactly in the best interest of Sicilians. This devolved into a Muslim civil war within Sicily. While Roger prayed, no one would notice him over there in the corner, trying to stay out of sight. This was around 1065 to 1066 when it all came to a head. So, follow me here. Let's jump quickly back over to Apulia and Duke Robert Giscard and his Byzantine-backed rebellion. We're going to put the, the whole Muslim civil war on hold for a moment. While Ayub led a revolt against al-Hawas back in Sicily, in the year 1066, a fresh batch of the feared Varangian guard arrived in Bari to help Abelard de Hauteville against Uncle Robert. When I alluded to Abelard's revolt as, as a serious threat to Giscard's rule, <laughs> I wasn't kidding. Constantine X Ducas, ever the scholar emperor, at least recognized Duke Robert for the threat he was, and sent what and who he could to Apulia. With these Varangians leading the way, not only was Bari reinforced, but the Greeks actually recaptured the two most prominent ports in southern Apulia, Brindisi and Taranto. A fun fact, by the way, I'm totally thrown off the narrative, but I don't care. Um, fun fact, Taranto was actually named after the Sicilian Tarantula, the same spider that terrorized Giscard's men back on the last episode. That means absolutely nothing in the grand narrative here but I found it interesting. Now, back to it. So Bari, Brindisi, and Taranto, Durazzo across the Adriatic. Don't look now, but the Byzantines might be making their reemergence back on the Italian peninsula. Robert had to have been sweating things at this point. Keep in mind what we said about Roger suffering in 1066 from the drought of Normans heading south. Well, that drought first affected Duke Robert Giscard. So whoever did come south, well, there's absolutely no way that those newbies made it past the Duke and his own war effort. What had once been a decades-long fire hose of knights became a mere trickle for Duke Robert, meaning Roger really did suffer from a drought. That year was a, an absolute wild one for Norman nation around Europe, as we know. All of this in southern Italy and Sicily was one thing, but obviously nothing 
would or could eclipse what Duke William had done up north. Where Robert and Roger had been the golden children of the popes up to September of 1066, that title immediately shifted to William. Where William was wearing the crown of the quote-unquote northern jewel that was the Kingdom of England, Count Roger was forced to stand by and watch the Muslims fight amongst themselves, and the unstoppable Robert Giscard was losing ground to his vengeful young nephew, whom he'd spurned a decade later, or excuse me, a decade earlier. 1066 was a great year for some Normans, and an absolute terrible year for others. But 1067? That would be different. Remember, though news was excruciatingly excruciatingly slow in the 1060s compared to today, news did travel, and it traveled well. People, especially those in the royal and papal halls around the medieval world, were well-informed about far-flung places and people, all things considered anyway. From emissaries to merchants, the roads and waves were the internet of the day, and information did indeed flow. So when reports of the new band of Seljuk Turks conquered Baghdad in 1054, that news traveled. And by the time these same Seljuk Turks, a decade later, were raiding the Anatolian highlands amid imperial chaos back in Constantinople, well, people were also pretty well aware of it. Robert Giscard heard about the death of Emperor Constantine the Tenth Ducas in 1067. Remember the man who had sent the Varangians to Apulia in the first place, and he no doubt had a fleeting understanding of the issues within the imperial court, including the Seljuk Turks pushing in on their borderlands way out east. The days of a Varangian presence in Italy just had to be numbered. He might have thought, if he happened to pray for such a thing, his prayers were answered by the end of the year because the new emperor, Romanus IV, Diogenes, had in fact pulled the entire Varangian guard back home to Constantinople. This was the pressure release that he was desperate for, because things just weren't looking good for him after two years of losing to his nephew's powerful coalition. The rebellion did continue, but as soon as the last Varangian left, the wind was all but out of its sails. Norwich says, quote, The Greek initiative in Italy was halted, and deprived from one moment to the next of all the outside support, the rebellious vassals lost their nerve. End quote. It turns out that the last one of the barons to hold out against Duke Robert actually wasn't Abelard, surprisingly. No, it was a different nephew, Geoffrey of Conversano. So at the end of the last episode, I read to you a quote from Malaterra's Chronicle about how the sons of Tancred were, you know, greedy for rule and how they were unable, quote, unable to put up with anybody in their vicinity, holding lands and possessions without being envious. Remember all this? And immediately seizing these by force and rendering everything subject to their authority. Yeah, all of that. Well, Malaterra goes on from there like immediately on from there in the Chronicles, to say the following about Robert Giscard and his nephew, Geoffrey of Conversano. Quote, Duke Robert possessed this characteristic, the one mentioned earlier, by the way, even more than the others. Thus he attempted to make his nephew, Geoffrey of Conversano, his sister's son, render service to him for Montepeloso, as for the many other castra which he held from him. 
end quote. But here's the kicker, quote, even though Jeffrey had not received either it or the others from Duke Robert, but had gained them from his enemies through his own energy and without help from the Duke, end quote. Yeah. Geoffrey of Conversano earned every bit of his land holdings and wealth and power by way of his own hand and leadership. He didn't receive anything from Duke Robert originally, so he wasn't technically Robert's vassal, though he was within Apulia. Due to his participation in the recent rebellion alongside Abelard and the Byzantines, well, Robert was going to force it upon his, his nephew. Geoffrey held out for as long as he could. Malaterra admits, quote, many warlike deeds were performed on each side, end quote. But due to some treachery, someone opened the gates and allowed the Duke entry into the walled fortress, thus ending the little takeover before anyone else would die. Now, while Robert Giscard was conquering his nephew's lands in Apulia and overcoming a pretty rough four years over there, some major things were going down back in Sicily. In 1067, tensions finally hit the battlefield between Ibn al-Hawas and the Zirid commander Ayyub, along with his brother Ali. A seismic shift happened, actually, as Ibn al-Hawas was killed during this battle against his North African opponents. This resulted in Prince Ayyub, a Zirid, mind you, becoming the preeminent Muslim leader in Sicily, at least in name. This rough four-year span between 1064 and 1068 came to a head just one year after Ayyub defeated al-Hawas. But first, to understand what led to the hard stop that was 1068, we have to look at what Prince Ayyub faced being a foreigner at the head of the largest force in Sicily. Just like in Iberia over the previous decades, Berbers coming north, this time to Sicily, found it very difficult to gain the established Muslims' respect and deference and, most importantly, trust. Just like Christians, one Muslim is not the same as the next, obviously, right? Loyalties ran deep, and when the Berber Zirids from North Africa sent two Berber Zirid princes to Sicily, the local populations regarded them as mercenaries, as foreigners nothing more. They're, they certainly weren't Sicilians. They were loyal to their Sicilian leaders, not some Berbers from across the sea. Even with a resounding victory over a Sicilian emir, Ayub struggled mightily with the concept of legitimacy. Throughout the rest of 1067, he did his best, but again, Sicilian loyalties didn't come easy. In fact, in matters such as these, they often came to blows. But Ayub knew that with the Normans standing by and watching his Muslim brethren duking things out and killing one another, well, he realized that the Muslim hold on power was slowly eroding itself away. It was making it easier for the Normans. Seen in this light, we see why Prince Ayub rushed to confront Roger de Hauteville as the latter was hanging out in Petralia, terrorizing the northern countryside. Unfortunately, what he didn't realize was that his victory over Al-Hawas occurred at precisely the same moment when Normans began heading back south. William had gotten the crown, 
and was now just divvying up the land amongst his loyalists and subduing his kingdom with the people who were still willing to stay there. And Duke Robert also was just released from his rebellion, thus freeing up numerous resources to share with Roger. If he had caught on to the Norman predicament over the previous few years, he caught on too late. Either way, in order for Ayub to gain full support in Sicily, he would need to make a statement. He would need to prove himself to all the Saracens. Besides, Ayub was a proud man, and he never forgot the devastating humiliation he suffered under Al-Hawas at the Battle of Chirami. Revenge on Robert couldn't have been far from Ayub's mind. One summer morning, Roger was on one of his many raids across the northern across northern Sicily, this time just south of Palermo, literally about 15-16 miles south. He had a few hundred men with him as a show of force, but it wasn't anything too serious. Again, it was just another raiding party. But as he approached the town of Missile Mary, his road was blocked by the largest Muslim assembly against the Normans since the Battle of Chirami five years earlier. This no doubt caught Roger by complete surprise. That's not something Roger was used to, by the way. Now, Missile Mary, translated from Arabic as Town of the Emir, was mere, like I said, miles from Palermo, 16 to be exact. Yeah, Roger was really pushing things that summer morning. He was, he was quite deep toward Palermo. What's more was that not only was he deep into hostile enemy territory, but also the Muslim army in Roger's way, it was already brought up in complete formation and ready for battle. Prince Ayub overseeing it all right smack in the middle. Roger was simply not prepared. There's just no other way to put that. This had the makings of an absolute tragedy for the Normans and Sicily. And as we know, here is where Malaterra shines, so I'll let him describe the scene. He said, quote, The Count saw them from afar and roared his defiance. He gathered all his men together in a body and laughing the while said to them, You noblemen born of noble ancestors, fortune favors you, for the booty which you have long been seeking is now put in front of you, saving you further labor and tiresome travel to secure it. Behold the booty given to us by God. Take it from those who are unworthy of it. Let us use it, dividing it up as the apostles did, to each according to his labor. There is no need to be afraid of those whom you have defeated on many previous occasions. If they have changed their leader, they are still the same people, of the same quality and of the same religion as the others. Our God, however, also remains immutable. And if our, tr- if our trust in our faith does not waver, then neither will he change his decision to help us to victory. End quote. And with this rousing speech, Roger, as he was famously capable of doing, on the spot divided his men up into lines in order to charge on the much larger army. And it was he, Roger, who led the entire charge. Smashing into the Saracen front lines caused a panic among, uh, amongst Ayub's men. And when the Normans rode their horses over any Saracen in their path, Ayub's men began to flee. Ayub had put everything on the line by standing in Roger's way that summer morning outside of Palermo. And he was watching it all being trampled literally under the hooves of Norman horses. 
As Muslims scattered in all directions, Roger ordered his men right then and there to send a message to every Saracen on the island that he and his Normans would not give up until the island was theirs. And he sent this message by ordering his men to run down every single Saracen fleeing that battlefield. Roger, it seems, was feeling a little pent up, if you know what I mean. Malaterra tells us, quote, There were hardly any survivors from that great multitude to carry back the news of the disaster to Palermo, end quote. The Battle of Missalmeri, as it came to be known, was yet another resounding Norman victory, this time over a predominantly North African army led by a North African prince. Roger had proven himself a serious threat to Sicilian Muslim rule already, but he doubled down on him being a threat to any and to every enemy who opposed him, and it was high time he let everyone know about it too, if they weren't already aware. And he thought, eh, let's start with Palermo. Let's let them know about it first. After scouring the battlefield and empty and in the empty Saracen encampments, he captured a massive number of pigeons. See, it was well known that Saracens brought carrier pigeons with them whenever they went on campaign or, or across the sea to either act as a delegation or, or even to raid the Italian coastlines. You know, Roger decided to use these pigeons after the battle in a rather unique and horrifying, <laughs> to be quite honest, way. Now, believe me, I wrestled with whether to add yet another Malaterra quote here, but there's just something innocent in how he talks about the pigeons, so I thought I'd add it. So forgive me if these long-winded quotes bother you. It's just another reminder that people living a thousand years ago were, were really quite similar to us today in, in, in so many ways. Malaterra writes, quote, It was the Saracens' custom to bring with them, when they went on a journey of any length, pigeons that at home were fed corn mixed with honey. The male birds were kept in cages, and when there was some change of fortune which they wished to make known at home, they wrote the news down on pieces of parchment which they hung around the birds' necks or under their wings. They then let the birds loose, and the latter would hurry home bringing the news of what had happened to their absent friends and whether they were successful. The little birds could not read, but would hurry home bringing the parchments with their messages in search of the sweet honeyed grains on which they were so often fed, end quote. No kidding, Malaterra. Birds couldn't read, huh? So there's something endearing about some of these medieval writings, but Malaterra abruptly takes a turn for the macabre at this point. <laughs> he says, quote, The count captured the cages with these birds along with the rest of the spoils, dipping the parchments in Saracen blood. He released the birds and thus informed the Palermitans of the misfortune which had occurred. The whole city was thunderstruck. The tearful voices of women and children rent the air and rose to the heavens. Our people rejoiced. Theirs brought forth sadness. End quote. So we'll end this episode with that. It's with a pretty mixed bag of emotions, that's for sure. The Battle of Missalmeri in 1068 was many things. It was a kick in the pants reigniting Roger's dreams in Sicily. It was another massive collapse of Muslim supremacy on the island. And it was also a marker 
for the immediate downfall for a Zirid prince named Ayub, who, in retrospect, had some promise to bring Sicily to heel under Muslim rulership. But I want to point out that Roger didn't win at Missalmeri and stay in Missalmeri. Remember that whole thing about soccer triangles? It'd be cool if every time the ball is played forward that, that the forward position holds that position. But as I mentioned earlier, sometimes a ball is passed forward. The player assesses the situation, you know, on the spot within a second, you know, feel things out. And then the player decides to pass the ball back to the rear position of the triangle. See, that ball may have been a good ball. And that forward position may have highlighted a a weak point in the defense. But sometimes pulling back in order to exploit the weak point again later to maximize your opportunities, well, sometimes that's the better strategy. It's the strategy of patience. Basically, Roger sniffed out a weakness in Missalmeri. Not only was the North African army decimated, but the fact that he was able to do what he did just 16 miles from Palermo showed the Saracen weakness around the city. Roger didn't have what he needed yet, so he just passed the ball back. He pulled out, and he went back to Petralia. This is the ebb and flow of the beautiful game, and this is the ebb and flow of conquest and warfare. In my opinion, Roger played this perfectly. So as it were, after surviving, and I use that word deliberately here, After surviving the years between 1064 and 1068, the Hautevilles were back in business as of August 1068. The quote-unquote becalmed ship that that was the Norman machine once again got the wind in its sails. There would never again be a time during either Robert's life or Roger's life in which they would be as sedentary as they were during those four years. And on the next episode, things picked up. We'll pick up with what is occurring almost exactly during the Battle of Missilemary, this time back in Apulia, and Duke Robert looking for a little vengeance for what he was just put through. He'd tamped down the rebellion and stolen even more from his nephews. But the problem of Byzantine money was a real problem. And currently, the Eastern Roman Empire, thanks to the work of the Varangians over the previous couple years, Well, they still held Brindisi and Taranto in southern Apulia. But the one thorn in his side all of these years, the source of all of his troubles, was the port city of Bari, the western outpost of the Byzantine Empire for some 500 years at this point. In August of 1068, Robert Giscard squinted his eyes toward the city of Bari. And, um, well, I'm getting carried away, so I'm going to stop it right there. On the next episode, we'll see what Robert has planned for the city of Barry, and I can't wait to tell you about it.